Welcome to Season 5 of the podcast of The Urban Mystic. In this season, we're exploring relational spirituality, which is not rooted in character formation and instead in immediate relational engagement with God. It is a relational, mystical spirituality encouraging people to enter deeply into living and loving in relation to their own self, others, and God. We can't think of any better venture to give our lives to than this, and I'm sure you'd agree with us. In seeking to establish a relational spirituality on the foundation of our value for intimacy with God, we need to face the question as to whether the relationship we have is in the practice of the faith as opposed to the divine person who draws near. In this episode, we begin feeling this line of thinking. We rely on your generous support to continue this podcast and the rest of our work. Please consider making a contribution towards the work of the Urban Mystic. There's a link to follow in the show notes to PayPal below. Please don't forget to like this episode, subscribe to the podcast, and leave a comment on your favorite listening platform. I'm not in my usual place, and I'm not with my usual recording gear. So if there's any sound disparity between, <laughs> you know, what this is normally like and what this comes out like, I just want to apologize ahead. And and I am where I usually am, and my sound is usually quite uh, subpar. Well, I am grateful, at least in between all of the power cuts and failures and issues and all the rest that we've been currently facing, you and I, between things in different countries and whatever, that we're still able to meet up this evening and and talk further in this series. So uh, I'm looking forward to what you're going to pop out on the table for us to have a stab at. I feel like this is a bit risky, but given the episode last week, I think it gives us a natural follow-on. You know, last week in some ways gave us a bit of an orientation that there's a, there's, a, there's a spectrum of experience that is usually referred to as though it is the experience of God. And it's not to say that, that God isn't experienced in and amidst that kind of stuff. But if we're going to highlight the difference between an immediate engagement with God and God meeting with us despite and in through what we do, there's, there's a bit of, I guess there's a bit of a muddying of the waters. Like how do we recognize an immediate valid experience of God as opposed to taking a look at just abuses or the attempt to not go into abuse? So on the one side of the spectrum, we've got the charismaniacs and the rentacostals and a whole bunch of crazy stuff that happens in that direction. And then on the other end of the extreme, we've got God is completely undifferentiated. You're born within the faith. The spirit is with you to the end of the age. There's no discrete or distinct experience of God. It's all exactly the same. So on one hand, we've got the extremes and the excessive of the immediacy, which is not what we're talking about. And then on the other hand, we've got the extreme of the completely undifferentiated and that's also not what we're talking about when it comes to relational spirituality so i thought what we could do is just take a couple of weeks to to throw out a couple of our sacred cars perhaps when it comes to christianity and say when we're talking about the following thing here's why we see it as a constructivist or a manipulative or a whatever kind of experience but it isn't exactly an immediate experience with god it's not what we're talking about when we're talking about relational spirituality because to one extent or another, the experience of God is often collapsed into an activity or service that we do. And an outsider come, coming in will go, well, I don't see God in that. And, and an insider will go, of course I see God in that. What's the difference between a valid and invalid experience? And so in some ways, this is uh, it's challenging territory to get into because the thing that can be thrown out is, well, who do you think you are? How do you know? How can you judge what is or isn't a valid experience? And I think when we get into that territory, we get into the territory of, of basically not being able to recognize 
if and when God actually is present to speak and act and engage, as opposed to how do we know whether God is or isn't? On one extent, or, uh, <clears throat> on one extreme, we've got the sense of going, you can never know. And on, on the other end of the extreme, you've got, you can know, and here's how you know it's through these events and activities. And I think that when we're looking for a relational spirituality, we're not necessarily looking to collapse things into marketable events and services or religious goods and services that we perhaps are used to. So I think we're often given the story as to what it looks like when God is present. But then the question ends up being, how do you know God is present in and through that? I think it's important that we start tackling that. No, that's cool. So I I, I follow you. I think what would be helpful, um, because you know, we've we've had some conversation leading into actually talking now as we're recording in this episode, we've had some sort of preparatory conversation around this. I think what would be quite helpful. My first thought is two two things. The first is to kind of delineate the spectrum a little with specific reference to the outliers and almost just cut that off to start with and then go into some of the specifics of what you're talking about. You talk about the spectrum between kind of Pentecostal charismatic through to kind of um, some of what we, a lot of what we talked about last week which is the sense of the spirit is everywhere and you know god is everywhere it's it's not god that's lacking but your awareness etc and so on the one side i mean you you sent me just one of these wonderful videos that i always have a great chuckle out of this morning which is just well this one was less funny in some ways it was also just quite sad because it's a lot more of the serious side behind this so let me take an even further step back. One of my favorites of these videos has been go and go on YouTube, uh, Street Fighter. I think it's Street Fighter Benny Hinn or something like that. And it's someone's gone and montaged a bunch of these faith healer people with the, you know Benny Hinn loved to flap his jacket around and, and people will fall over because you know the spirit of God is moving, etc. And someone's gone and. Uh, edited all those together and then overlaid the animation from Street Fighter with like really bad 80s graphics with like the fireballs coming out and stuff. And that's just, I mean, it's so laughable. And, and I think, you know, that there's, there's levels at which we could dig into that and really start to talk about what's potentially happening in that context. I'm not going to do that now. I'm just going to say that's kind of the one side of the spectrum. The outliers are the real crazy manipulative. And then people have earned millions out of people's desperation, gullibility, pain, illness, all that sort of stuff. And that's now referring to the the clip you sent me this morning, which is really just some of these faith healers and how they've essentially just preyed on people. And those are those are easy to they're easy targets. So if we sort of cut that off on the one side of the spectrum. Then on the other side of the spectrum, I would suggest are the people who use the language of God, but will quite quickly tell you, actually, there isn't really God. God is actually just kind of within you. And the presence that you're coming back to is a heightened awareness of your own consciousness and your own divinity, et cetera, et cetera. And just for the sake of kind of like real hair splitting, I'm not talking about the divination stuff. That Richard Raw talks about that they were put slightly separately for anyone who's familiar with that, I think. But but the real kind of like the language of God, but there actually there is no God. And and that's very much on the other side of the spectrum. Because a few steps back from that, now on this on the second 
half of the spectrum are people who use the language of God as if there is a being of God and the being of God is constantly accessible and present, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. But we have the sense that what's actually going on there a lot of the time is that's actually just collapsed into the into the the self-to-self relationship and knowledge of self and looking internally. And there are a number of sort of uh, pillars that prop that up in terms of, you know, knowing biblical texts and practices and silence and prayer, et cetera, et cetera. And so we take the crazy of the charismatics, Pentecostals, and all of their experiences on the left. I don't really want to call it left and right. That sounds like it's it, – you <laughs> to be careful these days we talk about left and right. So – on, on the one side of my body, there's one hand, and that's the charismatic crazy crazy. And we're going to cut off the crazy crazy manipulative terrible, and you can come a step closer. And on the other side of my body, where there's another hand, we have the God is everywhere part of the spectrum. And then there's a lot of stuff in between that. So that's the first point. Try to cut the extremes off. They're easy targets. We're not going for them. Now, the second point would be within a slightly truncated spectrum now, which is still quite vast. It would be helpful, I think, for us to drill into some specifics. What are we pointing our finger at and going, this is spoken about. Sometimes I think people are speaking quite genuinely. This is God. God God is present in whatever ABC, which we're going to talk about now. But, But we feel that's, that, that needs to be dissected quite carefully because it's not what we're saying. So let's put language to what is A, B, C, D across the spectrum. What are these points, these moments? I don't know if you want to kick us off with that, if that gives us a bit more of a focus. I'm just, I think it's always helpful to keep dialing into what conversations you and I have been privy to. And now we're recording, we come in quite cold almost. And actually the listener doesn't have the background to our back and forth. So let's, let's populate that space. I don't know if that makes sense. Yeah. I'm going to go back to something that I, I was uh, introduced to in, in, in the days of my youth when I was studying. And that is if you draw, you draw a line and perhaps on one side, you've got one extreme and on the other side, you've got another extreme. So you've got a continuum. If you try to find the healthy middle ground between them, and the one group on the right looks at you, they associate you with the group on the left. And because you're closer, they treat you like more of an enemy. If you're in the group of the left and you look at the person who's trying to be in the healthy balance of the center, they'll see you as associated with the group on the right. And because you're closer to them, they'll treat you more like an enemy because you're looming as a greater threat or a closer threat to them in a way that actually offends them. And because you're actually close to them in position as well, they'll react harder against you to try to differentiate you and put you into the other group. I, I don't know if that makes sense as a as a bit of a picture. It's kind of like if you stand in the middle ground, you're going to cast a shadow that places you with the other group as they see you. There isn't that perspective when you're on the extreme left to look at the person in the center and say they're in the center because everyone is to your right. If you're extreme right and you look at someone in the center, there's no differentiation to say, okay, that person's got a healthy balance between the two positions or a healthy perspective, or they're holding they're holding um, two paradoxes in tension, or they've got a mature view of extremes in the situation, or anything like that. All they do is they see the person that is to their left, as though they're everyone's to the left and they're all wrong. And I think that's that's one of the things that's very important to acknowledge. Uh, and so we often end up with a position where people that are in the hyper-emotional type environments 
that look at people that are in the quieter spaces and they see everyone that doesn't agree with them and buy 100% into what they're doing as though they're all wrong and not experiencing God. And on the other end of the spectrum, you've got the people that it's, it's a still small voice only and they see anything that involves emotion or a standout experience as though it's in the opposite camp. Take take that a little bit further and just and just help me connect the why. Why is that helpful for you in terms of a key? Like just take that one step further. What does that lend us in terms of that perspective? Because I follow you in terms of in terms of what you're saying. We've talked about that before. Often often what happens is if you're in one camp and you try to highlight a concern in that camp, you create as though you're the you're the enemy and you you completely rise it off. So I think that's one of the reasons why why it's helpful. I think one of the other reasons why it's helpful in this situation is is especially given last week's episode, to contrast one group against the other doesn't necessarily solve the problem that we're trying to solve. To contrast one group against the other is to say we're right on the basis that they're wrong. And I think that's what we want to avoid as well. Don't know if that's too succinct. Yeah, because well, if if I'm following you, and if I'm not actually just taking a jump into to how I see it myself, I think what I hear you saying is is part of the work that we're trying to do is not so much contrast this spectrum, the one side to the other, so much as zoom out and go. It's not necessarily about one side or the other, so much as we're wondering. If, if across the spectrum there's something missing and there's there there are other elements that need to be highlighted and, and that need to be considered that are not in the you're left of me, you're wrong, you're right of me, you're wrong. It does it's not working in that kind of that's yeah, that sort of binary back and forth. I think the next thing is is to acknowledge that, you know, as you say, it's easy to look at the outliers, the clear examples of abuse and to take cheap shots at that. But again, that doesn't necessarily solve the problem. And yet, if we don't acknowledge what those cheap shots are, then we often find people reacting to that. So, so for instance, let me, let me put it this way. I use the language of intimacy with God and the presence of God. And I often find people reacting to me as though I'm saying we need altar calls or we need to be pushing people over in church and having hyper-emotionism. So, so what happens What happens is I, I, I very intentionally use the language of intimacy with God and prioritizing the practice of the presence of God, but I never refer to those things as though those practices are what we need to be doing. But I do notice that people's re- re- defense and their reaction is firstly in the direction of trying to affirm that what they're doing is so that is meeting the requirements already when it isn't, and that what they're trying to defend against is those excesses, as though what's being put on the table is if they're not doing those excesses, then they're not fulfilling the requirements of meeting with God. And I'm often very clear in my response these days to say, look, I don't need to defend the position that I'm not putting on the table. So by you throwing that on the table, I'm in agreement with you that that's not what we're looking for. And it's at that point that there's often the the recognition of going, well, then what are we talking about? Because that then opens up the unknowns, the variability, 
the uncertainty related to God's presence and voice. And it, the conversation goes in a different direction along those lines. Let's, let's drill down into some of the specifics of that, because I think that would be helpful. So I'm going to reflect to start with with you. You talk about some simple points of language, right? Intimacy with God, right? So I would put that, that's the first, like that's a point on the, on the piece of paper with a title. Out of that come a few lines in the spider diagram into some of the ways in which we make sense of that term. So we add illustrative or supporting terminology to understand that. Some of that is emotional. Some of that is emotionalism or hyper-emotionalism. And so some of the ways in which we understand the term intimacy with God is a listener to what you're talking about will go, oh, okay, I've got a frame of reference for that. I know what you're talking about. You're talking about, and there's two strands here I just want to quickly distinguish that I hear you talking about. You're talking about, A, those kinds of churches who just go nuts and people fall all over and everyone's just crying or laughing or running or jumping or shrieking or shouting or singing their lungs out. It's very vibrant, very in-your-face, very flamboyant, very, you know, this, I must be a little bit more careful with how I'm distinguishing because there's, there's two sides. So the, there's there's the person who knows that setup and is almost a part of that setup and goes, oh, you're talking about our stuff. And there the terminology is more positive or at least positively inclined. So it's, we're freer, we're more expressive, we feel okay with ourselves, we like to dance before God. There's also this this sort of stuff that's wound up in it. The other thread is the people who are on the other side who look at that, go, oh, we're quiet or liturgical or peaceful or contemplative or whatever. We don't do that kind of stuff. Those people are over the top, emotional, hyper-emotional, you know, it's it's a show, blah, 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 blah. And there's sort of two responses to that. And upon receiving that, you're able to go, oh, that's great. I'm neither of those. When I talk about intimacy with God, that's not what I'm talking about. But as we, I feel like we keep bumping our head up against this for a long time now, the, the language is so murky and so vague because it's used so indiscriminately almost that you have to keep drilling down into that and going, when I say intimacy with God, I'm not talking about an arena with 20,000 people, with a huge band, with lights pumping. That is one small identifier now. Okay, we've got that one up. I'm also not talking <laughs> about a darkened nightclub kind of effect place with strobe lights and a pumping band with 100 people. I'm also not talking about, and then you've got to go through a bunch of these. I'm not talking about a building in which everyone stands together and laughs and cries and falls over. And there's a number of those sorts of things. We have to keep unearthing all the supporting language around understanding the terminology of intimacy with God, um, both from those who identify quite strongly and those who identify it but don't like it. It's, that's a lot of what I hear you saying. And if we're able to clear that out the way, we can go, well, then this is what I'm talking about. And it's not so much that we need to get into defending, 
you know, all of the stuff that immediately rushes in to fill this void that opens up when you say intimacy with God, in which people just throw their understanding. And that's not a criticism, by the way, because I mean that that's that's how we move through life. Somebody uses a term and you've got to you have to find frames of reference through which we can connect with each other and we use what we have to get started. So it's not that we have to defend that and go, yeah, but you know, there is whatever it's good or it's bad, or I can see, you know, positive or negative in it. We're just going, we can identify it enough so that we can move it out of the way. Essentially, it's just creating a massive parking lot in which to keep bringing stuff up and parking it because it's not important. What is important, what we are trying to talk about is, and we're going to come to that, is, is that's, that's some of what I hear you saying, right? Yes, yes, very much so. And, and I think by way of getting to what we are saying, we've got to clear the decks in terms of some of what we're not saying. And so it, it's very important to highlight some of those without, I guess, carrying them to the extreme as though at times God isn't involved in them. I think there's, there's often a difference between we do the done thing and sometimes God shows up. And that's more that's more God working despite us than us working in conjunction with God. So in some ways, with a lot of these things, it's it's one of those classic things of when is a clock, when is a broken clock right? And that's twice a day. And that's just by nature of coincidence. And I think in, in many in many of these cases, we've got things that are hailed as though this is a clear sign that God is working. And what we what we're actually working with in ninety percent of the cases, if not ninety nine percent of the cases, is is like a constructivist or a um, like a constructed environment. Really, I don't necessarily want to use the word man- manipulation too harshly, because I think people with genuine intentions are schooled into these things as well. And those though there is a minority that uses them in a very particular manipulative way. That's not that. That doesn't really characterize the ninety-nine percent of the people that use these, as though this is supposed to be the legitimate steps in the faith or legitimate, legitimately what we do. I, I sense that we're kind of tiptoeing around getting into the meat of of the things that we want to say, but some of these sort of um, preparatory statements are helpful in terms of laying the ground. Is there anything else that you wanted to talk to? that was kind of general before I feel like you're going to get into some of the specifics now. Was there anything else that's helpful at a general level to just lay down before we move on? I just wanted to raise the question. If not, don't worry about it. But if there was anything else that you wanted to say that's general before we go into some of the specifics. Uh, that's a good question. I think at the moment I'd like to say yes and know what they are. <laughs> 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 But okay. I'm, I'm, no, that's cool. I'm not, but I'm not sure. Yeah. <laughs> okay. No, good. Well, then let's jump into the specifics then, because I, I feel that the, the sort of moving around the outside in circles a few times is really helpful in laying down that preparatory stuff. But as soon as that's done, then we're, let's move on. So carry on. You went for a walk the other day. I, I suppose one one example is 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 the is the story that I wanted to go on to, and that is is, is I remember. I remember when the idea of open-air preaching was put on the table by my contemporaries and I was studying theology at the time and that. And, and the whole thing was that, like, this open-air preaching is like this, this holy grail, you know, like people have really got the boldness of the Spirit and they do it and whatever. And so, so anyway, the other day 
I went for a walk and there was someone literally standing at the beachfront, uh, preaching fire and brimstone, um, sweat on the brow, spit coming out their mouth. And honestly, there was no one listening to them, right? They were standing there, literally spitting into the wind. And it just reminded me, you know, back in the days of, of Wesley and Whitfields, John Wesley and George Whitfields, there was a big renewal. And one of one of them, I think it might have been Wesley, or it could have been Whitfield. It, it's, 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 it's somewhere in that ilk, and I haven't looked it up beforehand, so I'm drawing like, the background of my mind, was in a situation where they're preaching to a thousand people in the church. And I think this was Wesley, actually, preaching to a thousand people in the church, and there were 2,000 people outside. And the response was basically to say, it's better that I preach outside with 3,000 people there than I preach inside to only the thousand. And so in that context, the idea of open-air preaching makes total sense. Institutionalized as it is, when someone's standing on a train, someone's standing on a street corner, someone's standing on a beach like that, and there is no one listening, you, all you're doing is fulfilling your need to be preaching to fit a particular box. There's, there's nothing more to it. And I feel like in some ways, there are things that start off in a in an historical context that can be perfectly valid in terms of its roots. But how we institutionalize and how we keep repeating it means that we're repeating a behavior or repeating a pattern or an activity without retrieving why on earth we're doing it and keeping in terms of what we're intending to do. There's a difference between what we're trying to achieve and how we go about achieving it. And when we institutionalize how we go about achieving it, we might not miss the reason. We can very easily then miss the reason why we're doing it and, and what we're doing it for, who we're doing it for. And then the, the doing of the activity becomes the end all and be all of what's happening. And the understanding is then that God has collapsed into that activity. And I think it's that that we're trying to reach for. So I think by way of circling around this, that's, that's, that's an illustration I just want to throw out here. That's good. So let me reply with with one of my own, and then and then we can, if need to, be jump into them or, or just keep going. I was thinking. So let's for now. I would suggest let's stick with one end of kind of the spectrum we're talking about. We're I think we're with we're firmly within the Pentecostal charismatic kind of that sort of side, right? So I have had significant moments working with people in a counseling or spiritual direction or that kind of space, significant moments and significant emotional moments. I've had moments with people where we've been talking and they've come to a realization or they've admitted something or they've seen something for the first time or they've become unstuck as we've been going back and forth. And, and it's, it's like richly emotional. Sometimes it's shatteringly emotional. Sometimes it's quite scary. Sometimes it's unbelievably, unbelievably liberating. There, there are moments that just I look back on with such great kind of joy and and just I feel very privileged to have been a part of something in, in some of these people's journeys that I've that I've that I've walked with in a in a counseling and spiritual direction environment. And if that emotion had not been present, 
important. I would have wondered whether we were actually getting somewhere. And often what has happened is it's been a little surprising. I mean, I've I've had I've I've had so reaching for for language, I would, I would often call it clients, but it's it's not quite that commercial a setup. But let, let's go with that language for now. Sitting with a client who it's suddenly just dawned on them what we've been talking about, or, or they've they've spotted an insight and they'll share it, and their voice breaks, or they just burst into tears, or they suddenly just shout with laughter. Or it's a very very there's a high volume of emotion in that. What's a better way to put that? It's, it's, it's not just it's, value. It's, it's a response. Yeah. Yeah. It's yeah. yeah but, it, but it's, response, yeah. yeah, it's explosive. It's authentic. There's, there's a lot going on in that. And if there wasn't that emotion, you would wonder, did we get anywhere today? Did, kind of, did anything happen in this session? I have seen that. In spiritual environments, I've seen people experience things, and there's been a release of emotion. I have also, though, seen, and I'm picking up on the way in which you 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 present, you orientate the the preaching example that you're talking about, because I think that's so helpful. I've also seen in church environments where there's kind of an understanding that. That that sort of emotion often accomplishes uh, accompanies people feeling liberated, experiencing liberation, experiencing joy, release, um, insights. Uh, there's all sorts of things, um, repentance. There's all sorts of things attached to that, and going oh, okay. So what we need is emotion, because connecting with God often there's emotion that happens there. So let's go and find the emotion, and then that must mean that God is at work. But the problem with that is that our emotions can also be quite manipulated, quite easily manipulated. And I've seen that through through years of doing church music and how easy it is to use music to move people. It's so easy. It's unbelievably easy to do it. You don't even have to be that good a musician. And Perhaps if I can qualify just for a second, you you know, used the word manipulation earlier and you said, oh, maybe that's a bit hard or whatever. But if if you kind of look at just a very, very, like a core definition of manipulation without any sort of like ethical slant placed on it, yes, manipulation is often used very evilly, but to manipulate something just means to move it with your hand. I mean, that's the basic etymology of the word itself. It means to 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 twist and shape and and move it around. It's not necessarily evil, but it's also not necessarily good, but you're involved and you are positioning things in a certain way. And as you say, a lot of people will do that really genuinely. And I have I have been on teams with people, music teams, with people who really, really genuinely felt that if the music moves people well enough, then God is there. And they will use synonymous language about kind of the musical, kind of the movement and the beats of, of a song and how well put together it is. And that it's actually just a flippant good song. And you can do a lot with it musically. And they'll talk about, oh, you know, God has really anointed this song. I'm like, no, he hasn't. You just have a good drummer. <laughs> And you've got good enough musicians on this team to really make the most out of this song. 
I could give this song to, I don't know, any number of bands out there and they'd play it to an audience and you'd get the exact same emotional response without any, oh, Jesus, oh, Jesus, just playing it. If they played it well musically, people would feel moved by it. It's it's so easy, but it's not the same thing. It, it doesn't work both ways. When God shows up and God does something, often emotion is involved. But if you center emotion as the goat, if we just get the emotion, then God is at work. No, I disagree. It doesn't work that way around. And and so the hyper emotion, I think, is is a problem because I think hyping people up in their emotions is 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 yeah, I mean, evil is maybe too strong a term, but it's that's a bad manipulation. Experiencing emotion with people, environments in which people are more easily emotional and more easily access their emotions is not necessarily a bad thing and people can experience emotions together but that's not the same as saying well god is there and so i've seen that in the emotional side the emotionally expressive church institutional gatherings etc etc and i think that's what we'd be saying just because there's emotion there does not necessarily mean that god is there or active or yeah I agree with you, and I think what we're saying there is that is that in some situations there's things that get institutionalized, and then the idea becomes if we've done that thing, then God has been there, and and that's very different to being able to recognize the presence and the absence of God, and it's very different to being able to recognize. I guess you know I suppose one could use a spiritual word like discernment. It's it's different to discerning the genuine presence of God from a manipulated environment of just a behavior or just an activity, right? And, and that's where it becomes a little bit tricky, is that in some ways it becomes, when it becomes institutionalized, it's hard to find anything genuine in it. And at that point as well, it also becomes very hard to discern whether God is or isn't involved in something. Because often the outlier event of God being involved in that is used to justify the rest of the usage of it. Going back to the street preacher, like illustration that I used earlier, whether you see someone doing that here or there, there will always be a story that goes around that, you know, legend has it that someone came to faith and had a genuine experience of God with someone that did street preaching. And there's a contemporary legend and there's legends in history. And, and it's basically put forward that we've just got to keep doing this. Because, you know, Steve, at some point, God does meet someone through that. And if just that one person gets met, then this is all worth it. <laughs> and when I look at it at that level, if the return on investment is on par with mail order advertising, then then it's very easy to discount God as being involved in it at all. <laughs> if it is, if the return on investment is 0.5%, that's within statistical error for the poorest form of marketing and activity that is, there is on the planet. <laughs> and, and I think many times when it comes to spirituality and religion, we use that example that as though if it doesn't work for 100,000 people, but it works for that one person, then, then what we're doing is actually perfectly valid. And I think that, that that is the wrong way to do it. If if the bench if our benchmark is 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 Jesus saying, 
I need to do what I see the Father doing, and I just share what I hear the Father saying. Then that's very different because what we're doing is we're repeating an activity, and then on the basis of that 0.5% responding, we go, This is real. And I think that's what we're trying to get away from is the language or the or the activity of God potentially working despite us is what we want to get away from. We want to get into being more alignment, firstly, with the people that we're connecting with, and firstly, with the God that is connecting with us and the people that we're connecting with. And, and notice there again, I use two firsties there rather than secondly, because I think in a relational environment, the relational connection and presence is most important. And I think we often we often miss it at that level, because again, the activity comes first. So provided we satisfy, for instance, the example, provided we satisfy a need to be standing on a soapbox and preaching in public, our work is that. And I say, no, that's not the case. <laughs> because it's never been the case anywhere in history. So why should that be the case now? As institutionalized, it becomes the case because that becomes the done thing. And no matter how dysfunctioning we do it, provided we're doing it, we look back in history and we draw on those legends from history as to what we're doing is actually faithful to what they were doing. And yet by doing the very activity that they did, we're completely missing the mark in terms of what they were actually doing. And I think that can be quite abstract to some, but I'm, I'm really hoping that that makes sense enough for us to be able to work with. I think it really does. So what other, what other specifics are there that we can dig into on this side of this, um, of this spectrum? Have you got any other, yeah, any other specific um, activities as we're talking about in terms of that framework or yeah, practices that you see there? That I, I, I want to start off with the favorite. <laughs> Great. I, I wonder if you, if, if, you, if you know if I'm throwing that out, if you, if you know where I'm going. Because I think you had a you had a moment locking eyes with a preacher recently that I want to draw on. <laughs> <laughs> Go for it. <laughs> and this is and I think I think the first thing that I want to draw on is the is the idea that in many churches and church services you can have this moment where towards the end of the service there's the the altar call, and the altar call becomes a specific expression of the four spiritual laws and the sinner's prayer and you know the whole thing of all eyes are bowed and uh, the hand goes up and says this prayer after me and god is understood to be quote-unquote working the environment bringing people to salvation because they make their faith commitment in that service i, I know if you can describe that better than me well in fact i think you can <laughs> i feel so hesitant so slimy even you, you, do you want me to tell the story <laughs> quickly I'm trying to think. I don't think. I think I've just covered it with you. I don't think we've talked about it in a recording. And this requires a lot of backstory, but I won't go into it. We we went to church. We went and visited a church, and we went two Sundays in a row. And on the second Sunday, there was a visiting preacher, and this person did their message, and I was in for probably fifty to sixty percent of the message in amongst between my wife and I, kids and that sort of stuff in a new church. But I happened to be at the end when he finished his message and he did an altar call. And so he did the very, very traditional, traditional jeepers. Can I use that in a Hillsong-esque church environment? So it's a Hillsong-based, so traditional for Hillsong. It's a Hillsong sort of flavor church. 
So all eyes closed, all heads bowed, that kind of language that I've, I've just heard in so many contexts. It's just, it's, yeah, it's just, it's just part of the, part of the flavor. And so I just, I just thought, well, I'll just be very respectful. And there were a number of things, again, lots of backstory, lots of things going within me being there in the church, listening to the message, wondering why I was wasting my life. Again, being in a church service on a Sunday morning. And so lots of things I was just trying to sieve through. Also trying to be as present as I could be to God and say, are you here? What's going on? Like, are you a part of this? Have you got anything to say to me? Is anything happening in this room? Blah, blah, blah. Um, so just also trying to, I was essentially, to put it very, very simply, trying to talk to God at that point myself. And so this person said, you know, we're just, you're going to raise your hand if you feel like you want to respond to this call from God. And it's also very usual language. You've fallen away or you've never heard the message before or you just have to come back or you have to make a recommitment. Like there's, <laughs> it just strikes me now. There's so many different categories that you can tick the box because it like gives you best chance of success, right? Because I think almost anybody in a church environment there can then tick that box because you're either super committed and a-okay, or you might want to recommit, make another faith commitment. You've backslidden and are coming back, or you've never heard the message before. Covers probably like 80 to 90% of the congregation. So it's a good way to get some hands up in the air. Anyway, so they said, yeah, you know, we're going to do this. So now everyone's not looking. If you want to do this, raise your hand. And then there were some moments of silence. And then he carried on. He said, I'm just going to leave it a bit longer in case there's anyone else you can raise your hand. So I opened my eyes and looked around. And I thought as I opened my eyes that I caught the guy looking at me. I thought, I thought nothing of it. Closed my eyes again and carried on to kind of wrestle internally what's happening here. And he reissued the invitation, similar words. If, if you're wondering if I'm speaking about you, then, it, then it's you. Just you can do this basically kind of language, raise your hand. And I opened my eyes again to have a look around. And again, I thought I, I thought I opened my eyes and had him looking at me. So I thought, okay, well, I'm, I'm, I'm going to close my eyes again and I'm going to wait and see what happens. And if he repeats this, I'm going to open my eyes, but I'm going to be looking right at him when I open my eyes to see what's going on. And similar language. And he said, I think there might just be one more person. The language changed, just one more person. I feel who's here today whose God is working on you and you need to respond to this message. And so I kind of looked around with my eyes closed and then I positioned my gaze where I felt he was, opened my eyes and we locked eyes <laughs> and he immediately looked away. And I thought, oh, I, I think you think me. <laughs> so I thought, okay, well, I'm just one more try. Like, you know, you can never be too certain before I just, my ego talking to me. Close my eyes again for like another 30 seconds in that time. He sort of tightened the screws on. There's definitely, he feels just one more person here who's just battling and just wants to be able to raise their hand, but doesn't feel they can. And You know, God is working in your heart. Just raise your hand, come to Jesus. Da, 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 da. Did the same thing. I looked around with my eyes closed, positioned my gaze where I knew he was, opened my eyes. We locked eyes again. <laughs> he shifted his gaze <laughs> away from me. I thought, Ah, okay. I'm your, <laughs> I'm your victim this morning. I'm the guy that's like I'm new. Nobody knows me here. I'm I'm a good like, I don't know, head height taller than anyone around me. I was wearing a bright red shirt. Nobody else was. It's like you stand out like a stick, stick out like a stuck thumb. So you know. So I just thought, 
That's interesting. That's I really, really got the sense that that was aimed definitively at me. So I just closed my eyes again, put my hands in my pockets, and very quickly he said, okay, we're going to wrap this up. <laughs> <laughs> but that kind of action is just, that's what I hear you talking about. So I think, to be fair, you started it, let me kick it back to you. But that idea, if we just follow through on that action, then we're doing the right thing. Um, perhaps my last comment will be, I find it interesting, though, at that point, though, that I really am trying to talk to God and go, like, what's happening? I'm here. You know, I'm still kind of looking around for you. What's happening? And he's at least, you know, and I stand to be corrected, although I'm reasonably sure this is what was going on. He, I think, was talking, trying to talk directly to me as if God was busy with me. And I'm not aware that God was busy with me at all, specifically, intentionally. And I felt like I was asking. So, again, speak under correction. I could be wrong. But that's my sense of that moment, that I was looking for God, asking, are you here? What are you doing? And that person was issuing the altar call as if God was specifically busy with me right then in that moment. There's some odds maybe he saw something that I didn't or discerned something that I didn't. But I'm not completely convinced by that. And it really does seem to me to stick definitively in that box of do the altar call it's a bit like cold call, a cold, uh, cold audience reading, right? You know, like this, the psychic stuff. You throw enough stuff out, like you're eventually going to get some hands up. So <laughs> it doesn't have to be very specific. Uh, cold uh, psychic. What, what is the specific? Is it cold psychic reading? Psychic readings? Yeah, it's kind of like 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 cold reading in that sense. Yeah. And really bad prophecy, I think, are usually pretty much the same. God is telling me something about someone here with an aunt. Well, somebody's going to put their hand up. And then you can just kind of fumble your way through that. But anyway, that was a very interesting experience of this altar call that you're talking about. Is, uh, is that helpful enough uh, for you to carry on with? Oh, very helpful. Very helpful. <laughs> cool. I'll kick it back to you then. Thank you for having a wonderful experience recently. <laughs> <laughs> my my pleasure. I loved every second. I can't wait to go back. So a while back, I was in a in a church that did a similar thing, and yet I was I was uh, you know in the church and in the context of worship, and it, it, the row in front of me there was a family, and in the context of worship, I really just asked God like, "Are you saying anything?" And I, I looked at this uh, teenager ahead, and I felt like I had a very clear word for her. So I got the parents' attention and said, look, you know, I'm a visitor in this environment. So I feel like I've got a clear word for your daughter. Like, I mean, would you mind if I shared it? And they're like, oh, cool, let's do that. And I shared it and it was spot on. And she cried and they cried. And, you know, <clears throat> because I'm a man, <clears throat> quote, unquote, I didn't really cry, but I may have sniffled a bit and shed a tear. <laughs> and then they were very much like, yeah, yeah no, 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 we've got to get you to meet our pastor afterwards. And then in that environment, they went on to do an altar call type thing as well, which was exactly the same kind of thing. You know, like hits points in the service and just the keyboard was playing in the background and all eyes were bowed. And you know, while everyone's eyes are bowed, we're going to do this thing. And, you know, I see that hand, I see that hand. Yes, we'll pray for you and just, just pray this prayer for me. It's a first time commitment or it's recommitment. And then, and then afterwards, it's like everyone who prays the prayer, please come forward. And, you know, we've got our team that's going to take you off and you're going to fill out these like connection cards and blah, blah, and all that kind of stuff. And this, this family is very excited for me to meet that, uh, that, 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 that like their, their church leaders. And uh, and I did, and and their response was basically to say, 
yeah, we don't do this stuff here. <laughs> <laughs> we don't we don't do this immediacy of God stuff. Like, no, not at all. No, nonsense. We, we, we don't want this. We don't we don't want this at all. Why? Because it might scare people. <laughs> and I was like, oh, very interesting. You you're very comfortable with this 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 formulaic thing that you do that's institutionalized because it fits within the context of your church that you can thrive in public like that. But you wouldn't be trusting people in the congregation to be doing this. <laughs> So I had a very awkward conversation with them around that, and and uh, you know I I wish them well, and uh, and and happily left. But in that environment, it was very clear to me what the difference in priority was, because you know certainly from my side, I thought there was a genuine engagement with God with this this family. It wasn't just about the daughter. It's it's in a family context, you know, like you know from counselling to impact one person is to impact the whole family. Everyone's involved was one of those kind of scenarios but in that environment in the church environment what what stood out for me was the just was the the clear difference in line of expectancy in terms of how god is supposed to work and in that environment god is expected to work in the altar call and that's valid and we know exactly what that looks like and it's led from the stage and you know people respond and there's certain numbers that are involved but this kind of bespoke interaction like, we can't trust that. We can't have that because we can't control the quality of that. We can't control that from stage. We don't want people just running wild doing this kind of thing because how do we trust them? How do we trust them to be here for God? And I felt that that, for me, illustrated the difference between the two. The difference between, I guess, an activity that you can reproduce every single time and you can almost guarantee the results of Because that, that's what happens. I mean, I remember that back from the Assemblies of God days, and I remember... Um, it was about 1994 I was introduced to an SMD to God Church in, in Cape Town and that's what they did That this was their big thing in terms of how people got saved and I remember back then just feeling really uncomfortable with it feeling like this is very manipulative and like how is this real and I'd seen that previously at like these Christian concerts and they do the same thing or you go to a particular kind of church and they do that thing and then other churches don't do that and they don't see that as being legitimate and then in terms of the quote-unquote coming to faith experience i recounted the story in, in the episode that i did um about my my experience about how this one couple that i knew kind of forced me and someone else to go through this experience but i'd already had an experience of god and felt like you know this actually feels abusive this feels like i'm being forced to do something to meet their need but I don't feel that this is relevant to me. And then the person who did it with me, they never had any faith in counsel along those lines. For them, it was just they did the, they did the dumb thing and their life was expected to change and they just never did. You know? And so so in some ways, I, I guess what I'm what I'm throwing out here is that the, the formulaic approach to the altar call satisfies any number of different markers, but real questions emerge around. Is this a constructed, manipulated event on one hand? And I think in most cases that that is the case. And to what extent is there genuine experience with God in that? Because, I mean, we've, we've, we've had a guest on where, where their significant coming to faith experience was in that environment. So, so here's where I think it gets difficult. We've got these kind of events that we repeat like this. And in a very small minority of cases, I think God really is involved in meets with people. But for the most part, the constructed activity like that, especially the altar call thing, 
is not necessarily very helpful because people aren't necessarily experiencing God. They're having a response to the environment. They're not having a response to God. Yeah, so it's it's both easy and it's difficult because I I, I follow everything that you're saying and I'm, I'm with you and I think we we see much of the same things. And I think... I think part of the difficulty for me is that I think the the practices replace in a way this is both the complexity and the simplicity of it the practices in a way replace the presence of God question so much that it's not even a question anymore because this the question of the presence of God is thoroughly satisfied through the practices through the sort of modular happenings habitual repetitive happenings that that are built into the foundational practices of these church communities for example anyone who comes from an altar call type church knows that it's it's just it's in the dna of a church like that it's it does so many things for a community like that and i think of so you know some some of the some of the easy kind of outlier things that can easily be dismissed is I can remember being in a in a context like that when I opened my eyes while the pastor was they do this usual thank you thank you I see that hand thank you thank you and I was looking at the same audience and I didn't see any hands and I'm like this guy's just going around like pretending because everyone's got their eyes closed pretending that there's a whole bunch of people responding. And afterwards, everyone gets such a warm, wonderful feeling that look at us like we're this community and God's at work. And like, you know, there were 100 of us there today and 120 of us put our hands up for Jesus. Like nobody ever does the maths and goes, hang on. <laughs> and so it's complex because there's so many things that just reinforce the ways in which these 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 communities experience themselves and reinforce themselves, right? It's a bit of a sort of an internal cyclical reinforcement and it's complex because I, I understand a lot of those dynamics and what that's offering to people even at the level of we don't have to we don't have to do battle with this question of the presence of God because we have already answered that and I think that's why you see some of the perplexed looks when you say to people but what about the presence of God they're like what the hell were you were you in the bathroom during the altar call or like were you born in a barn or what the hell did you miss from today? Like it's all happening. Didn't you experience the worship? Didn't you hear that preach? Didn't you see the ministry time? Didn't you see the baptisms? And I'm like, yeah, I saw all of that. <laughs> it doesn't help me. And that's the simple side, but it's complex. And so I think it's quite difficult from the inside. At least that's been my experience so far, having a conversation with people on the inside of systems like this. And even that, that sounds terrible. I don't like the way that it's framed and the language here that I, that I have available to use here. But yeah, people who kind of, who are, who are sold out into that system, you know, like really good, genuine people that I, that I, that are some that I know well and I really love. It's, it's a perplexing conversation. It's like, why are we talking about this? Because it's already happening. But I see, to my mind, it's not already happening, or it is sometimes incidentally happening, as you say. But that's that's almost immaterial, and and it's to, yeah, I think to both of our minds, it's it's a it's a core 
part of this thing. It's a core part of this conversation, this disentangling to go, that's not it. What might it be? And part of the jump there is admitting that that is a question that needs to be discussed. And that's and that's not always so, so easy. And so, yeah, there's, there's a number of those blocks, I think, those sort of modular, I don't want to say additions because they're not peripheral, they're, they're central, but they're sort of, they're, they're sort of modular foundation blocks. And in some places, there are more of those blocks and others less that, that build up the foundation of how these communities express themselves and sort of reflexively um, and repetitively reflexively reinforce who they are through their habitual practices of these week in and week out. And, um, you know, it's, it's, it's not easy, but it's, it's really important. And, and I, at the pain of, of seeming very difficult sometimes, or seeming very contrary or very provocative, it's important to point these out and, and it's not always welcome, but it is to my mind, highly important to distinguish what's going on here. And then it's as important. I think, I don't know if there's some other examples that you wanted to use on this side, but it's as important, I think, to, to point it out on, you know, across the rest of the spectrum. So, um, yeah, I'm aware that part of our conversation tonight for those of our listeners from around the world <laughs> has to do with a particular uh, energy framework issue that happens in South Africa where the uh, lights are going to get turned off at some point. And so we have a bit of a clock on our episode here. And without wanting to rush it, I do want us to try and do justice across the different parts of the spectrum. So <laughs> I do have a slight mind on the time as we go on. I'm not wanting to rush us off this side, but I also know that there's much to be explored as we turn our gaze elsewhere. I am aware that the... Uh... We, we do have that as a time limit, and <laughs> unfortunately, unfortunately, we've got these rolling blackouts that we call uh, load shedding. And uh, when when the power goes off, it's in significant scale of areas. So, <laughs> so were there other aspects of kind of this side within the Pentecostal charismatic? And even there, I know we're using some some very. Uh, two short short terms for huge sort of umbrella groupings with with lots of dissimilarities as much as similarities but you know, lest we receive that critique but anything else within there that you wanted to put your finger on there are others that we could but I, but but i think for the sake of the conversation tonight let's let's stick with with the idea basically that you've got an in-service public response where there's a lot of pressure and I guess where the expectation is by people having responded in that way, God is God is expected to have done something in the background, in the heart of the individual. And, and the real question is, is how do you tell the difference between God doing something and someone just responding in that environment to the way that things are constructed? Because, because often people do go back to church wanting to make a reconnection with God. And then in that environment, it's like, while every head is bowed and all eyes are closed, if you want to make a recommitment, now is the time. Oh, look, you made a recommitment. Oh, look, God is doing something. There's, there's a lot of coincidence in that. And, and I think it's hard to put the finger on that because 
it's very easy for us to go, yeah, but it's God that moved that person to want to go to church in the first place. And then, you know, the person that's doing the preachery altar call thing for them, it's like, look, I heard from God, that person responded. I think when we're looking at that, we're looking at a collection of activities that will come together in a particular way. Whether God is involved or not involved, people are going to respond as out of the intention that they have for a recommitment, not necessarily out of intention, not necessarily in fulfillment of an engagement with God. So questions that I feel need to be asked is, is how, how do we know that that individual is actually responding out of an encounter with God as opposed to the way the service or that activity is constructed? And I don't think that when we start asking that as a question, we come up with a clear answer as to what the engagement with God looks like. And the reason why I say that is because the follow-up from that is largely contingent upon whether that person really stays in church, comes back to church, because their commitment to God is then evidenced by them being a good church guy. That's what, that's what the metric is. How, how, you know, who got saved, but how many people really stuck and got, you know, came to church? It, 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 it becomes, a, a, how do I put it? A diary I don't want to sound critical and disingenuous yet, but I feel like I can't get away from sounding critical and disingenuous yet. And I find that that's quite hard because I, I genuinely do believe that people do get to encounter God. But I feel that the majority of times that that is a construction, they get a response to, to the need and the wants, but they don't get to fulfill that in an encounter with God or a meeting with God. And that because, because the fulfillment begins and ends with doing church, how, how do we satisfy their need for relational engagement with God through that? I don't think that we do. I think the church's need to satisfy the need to get people to commit to church is fulfilled by Dominia. And that's that's where I feel like, am I just being too cynical there? Am I being just too frustrated with that as an exploitation? No, see, yeah, again, it's complex. I, I don't think you're wrong, but I, yeah, it is complex because part of what I hear you saying, if I'm correct, and this is how I see it, is that you know, when, when you let's talk about the specific that you raised in terms of well, perhaps God caused that person to go to church, they just didn't know it, right? And then perhaps God orchestrated somehow that moment in which the preacher spotted them, called them out, they responded, and the preacher was somewhat you know aware of that and involved, etc. But the the person still on the receiving end is, is still kind of none the wiser. They're they're participating somewhat in a they're not conscious of all of this. They're not they're not immediately first person present to it. This is a delayed fulfillment construct. And, and 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 it's a promise of fulfillment. It's it's very similar, I think, to the Protestant evangelical um passport theology, which is sign up for Jesus now, and one day when you die then everything will be fine. And I'm not suggesting that everything will be fine in this life either, but the whole idea of just like, just put your name on the line for something that will one day eventually come, but actually nobody has any guarantees that it's coming or not. 
it's actually just, well, maybe there's heaven, maybe there isn't actually like you have to get there and find out for yourself, but sign up. And then, you know, one day you'll get fulfilled in that. It'll be great. And, and so the language is often around like, how else do you interpret the language? God did something in them to bring them that day, to bring them to God. That is relational language. I, I can't look at that in any other way unless that language is, there's a manipulative element in which the person using it knows that's not what they mean, but they use it anywhere, anyway. Or they're not even aware that they are using relational language, but they don't have a relational intention. Right. But it's this delayed fulfillment, which is, I can go with that to a certain extent. That let's let's take my example. Perhaps I wasn't completely aware that God was doing something on that Sunday. And then maybe that preacher was really on the money. And maybe I should have put my hand up. Maybe something was happening. Maybe I missed it. Right. But if the fulfillment on the table is that if I put my hand up, I then go to church regularly and my fulfillment exists in consuming a great band and their music and some motivational speakers and their clever stuff. And even if I'm generous, perhaps it's really deep, meaningful. It's wisdom oriented. There's really, really good stuff there. And I go to that church, and, and that was actually, without giving you the whole backstory, that's really what I was looking for. I just was looking for some human-to-human, adult-to-adult connection. I needed to make some friends. Like, okay, I'm not going to go into the backstory. That's what I was looking for, self-to-other connection. Perhaps I managed that in that context. That's fulfilled. Perhaps I develop into a better human being by, through the medium of that institutional setting i start to serve perhaps i go and give up every saturday of the month at some serving space and instead of just feeling like oh look at me i'm doing something good you know and i just get the get that kick out of it perhaps something really happens to me and i start to be changed through the people i interact with in my capacity however i serve perhaps that happens as well none of that fulfills the relational language that is used. And so that's always just shifted out and is never fulfilled. And that I can't, I can't agree with. I would rather then say, no, no, no. I think the cynicism is, is merited. It's warranted. Rather go back and go, God is a construct that we use to understand how we order ourselves in meaning as individuals and individuals in connection with other individuals on many different levels and aspects within our lives. Like I can go with somebody who speaks that honestly. I don't agree with them, but I can move with that because at least it's not saying, but God did this in you. What do you mean? The construct? <laughs> is, is that what you mean? Then say that. This need within me to be connected with myself and other people, to use my life for something more than myself, some, all of this is going to disappear one day when I die. It's meaningless outside of the meaning that I import into it within my own self, my own inner relationships with myself, with others, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. That's what we mean by God. But that's not what's being said, I don't think. And unless someone's willing to go, no, I mean the former, Steve, not the latter, 
then they go, no, you're using relational language. You're promising fulfillment that never comes because what you place on the table for fulfillment is exactly what you've said. More preachers, more music, more coming to church, more tithing, more serving, more whatever else it is. But you never get to face that thing that caused you to go there in the first place. You never get there. That's cheap. I think you're nailing it right there. Because if we if we go back to last week's thing of what is intimacy, and it's and we look at it as the quality of relationship, where individuals have reciprocal feelings of trust and mutual closeness towards each other, and openly communicate thoughts and feelings with each other, that it's an interpersonal dyadic relationship, right? Here, the relationship is between the individual and the service, and the relationship becomes the, between the individual and the church, or the individual and the community, or the individual and people in the community. And the person-to-person, person-to-church service, person-to-church, person-to-their service, you know, like whatever ministry of service they get into, whatever, that becomes the proxy for their relationship with God. The quality of relationship they have with church, the quality of relationship they have with the worship, the quality of relationship they have with the preaching, the quality of the relationships that they have with uh, whichever ministry text. they get into, with text, etc., etc. Yeah. Yeah, that yeah. relationship becomes proxy for their relationship with God. And and there, one can't really speak about reciprocal feelings because that feeling can't be returned back to them by those abstract things like the institution or the you know, ministry they get into or anything like that. The, the closeness is one-directional. And so because it's not a relationship with a person and it's not with a person who can return the feelings. And I think that's, that's, that's the challenge here is that is that that can't but become dysfunctional. And and by repeating that, provided we've got numbers coming in, giving themselves the altar call, we're not actually measuring the quality of their relationship with God following that. We're measuring, it becomes, the, the church growth metrics become the metrics for people meeting God and relating to God. And that's 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 where that altar call type structure and mentality becomes becomes challenging, and I think it becomes particularly challenging in rich to poor dynamics, where where people getting a handout in terms of food and money becomes part of the transaction, or people coming to church, they come to church in order to get that support that they need, but you know especially in poor environments. And I think we've seen a lot of that in Africa with the uh, crusades and, um, you know, thousands of people getting saved and then they get a handout <laughs> and then that happens. And then they get saved over. next weekend. <laughs> yes. yes. Yeah. 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 I mean, I'm flippant and I shouldn't be, but from, from the rich perspective, the handout, the person doing the handout, it's, it's ridiculous. Yeah. So uh, one, one f- sort of, small refinement I would want to bring to that. I think that there are some, I've experienced and heard of some great institutions that are very good at measuring the metrics with which they work. I don't think you're excluding that, but I want to just make sure that that's there. I I know, and I've been a part of ones that are very clear in terms of measuring how well people know the text, how healthy their relationship with the text is, with the music that they use, with 
you know, listening to and returning to and um, integrating and living out the messages they receive, sermons, preachers, et cetera, et cetera, with community orientation, groups, meetings, connections, praying together, serving together. There's all sorts of areas. And, and, and I think there are some very, very highly functioning institutions at that level. But for me, you can't get away from the fact that that is not, that is still the delayed fulfillment. There's still the, the future promise of some actual relational connection with God and the present fallacy of, but that's happening in how well you know the text or how often you pray or do you journal or, and, and so, yeah, I mean, cause, cause I think people will often say, oh, but it's not my church. My church is like, amazing we have small groups and people pray together and we're always meeting and people are going out and praying for the sick and it's really genuine and then and, and, yeah i'm with you and and i think you guys are doing an amazing job but i just want to be clear what are you doing and what are you not doing and i know that seems hell of an arrogant and cynical on my side but when i put it like that i still feel as though i can go to so many of your prayer meetings and I can meet myself and I can meet other members there and I can meet with parts of the text and the pastors and all sorts of things. There can be all sorts of relational happenings in that sense of it there that feel that are rich, actually. Like, I don't want to take anything away from them, but they're not what you say they are, which is the vertical, if I have to use that simple 2D vertical and horizontal. It's, it's, it's not that. And so... Yeah, it's it's rich and it's textured and it's layered and it's human and there's all sorts of wonderful things going on there. And I have no problem with communities like that as such, other than, but where is this God? <laughs> where, where? Where are they? Whatever the historical backstory to this is, as it is practiced in a very consumer-oriented uh, religious culture, I find it very hard to look at this and say God is genuinely involved in that. And and it's precisely for the thing that you're saying there, that it's the it stands in proxy for that relational engagement with God. And 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 the quality of one's response to that event is taken to be the quality of response to God. And I think that's not the case because because down the line people ask questions. When did they experience God? Was that real? And I think now, just to bash the other side, <laughs> to be to be fair, um, I was reminded of the, the two things that I'm hoping I'll be able to tie together in a helpful fashion. And this comes out of a more traditional church setting, so far more liturgical, far more. Yeah, if if you're familiar with the setting, you know exactly what I'm talking about. Immediately, it's not the Pentecostalism, it's not the hyper-emotionalism, even where there is some of those flavors often that come into traditional churches, especially ones that are reinventing themselves musically somewhat, etc. It's still a very different vibe. It's still far more, in some settings, far more conservative, far more staid. Um, yeah, let me go, kind of go with that. So I, I heard this this story about 
you know, this person refused to come to church because the sermons weren't inspiring them anymore. And the priest said to them, well, you know, tell me about the, the five best meals you've ever had in your life. And the person could recount them. And they said, okay, but you know, did you have that for the whole of last week and the week before? What did you eat? No, oh, I just ate normal stuff. They said, well, there you go. And do you eat normal stuff all the time? Yeah, I eat breakfast, lunch, and supper every day. Oh, why? Well, because if I stop eating, I stop. I don't survive. They said, okay, but so you're not just going to eat those five amazing meals and repeat all the time as a way of sustaining yourself. Those are great meals and everything, but sustenance is actually just going through the rather pedestrian, low-level just consumption of you know calories. <laughs> It's just keeping that intake going. And so that's why you come to church. Even if the message is not blow your socks off, you just keep going because it just it gives you enough to just keep moving week by week. Yeah, that's important. That's just kind of rollover sustenance. So park that story for a second. The second thing is in some of C.S. Lewis's writing, I came across this idea which he talks about the liturgy, not so much as an end in itself, as it is a vehicle towards God and, and his take on, so he was Church of England, if I remember correctly, which is Anglican in other parts of the world, loosely, like, don't shoot me, okay? It's close enough. Um, and, and he talks about the liturgy. He says it's the same, week in and week out. And that's important because you have to not be interacting with the liturgy. That's not important. What's important is eventually it becomes so rote that your mind and your body, et cetera, can be doing this over and over again. And you can actually start to be transported through that and you can start to connect and commune with God. And I was really struck by that the first time I read it. I thought, well, that's, that's really amazing. But then I thought to myself, well, what if that's not who you're actually connecting with and you actually are just connecting with the continued, this, this is the sustenance picture, right? Which is the returning to church every week. The vehicle in itself becomes the end because what if through that liturgy, what if, if, cause I'm, I'm not certain. I mean, I, I wonder would C.S. Lewis say that, there's an actual personhood of God behind there. And if I read the Narnia stories, I would think that he would. And looking at how he sets up the interactions between the children and Aslan, the lion, and the Narnia stories. But I think to myself, but what are you connecting with? What is, what is this vehicle tying you to? Is it just the sense of, well, you just have to keep eating every week? And the idea of the God that you're connected with is less personal and more sort of just abstract and theoretical. And so there's something in the repetition, in the boring sort of, you know, oats and cereal chewing of liturgy every Sunday that connects you with a sense of belonging and purpose and meaning bigger than yourself. Or do you connect with a personhood that might say something back to you once the actual words that you're using in your prayers, et cetera, become, it becomes white noise in the background. It's background noise. The idea is there's something beyond that. And we've talked a little bit about that before. We've talked about prayer and contemplation and silence. Not Dostoevsky. He's the Danish theologian. 
Um, damn it. His name will come back to me. Kierkegaard talks about, you know, the silence that just kind of goes beyond other silences. And at the end of that silence, a voice speaks. And I think to myself, but is, th is that really what the liturgical church is for? Is that what they say it's for? Are those practices intended for real sustenance? And real sustenance within relationship can be very much like that picture that I that I you know drew. There's there's amazing meals in relationship sometimes, and sometimes there's just day by day maintenance and nourishment and sustenance that just keeps the relationship going. But it's relational stuff. It's it's not. And this is where it gets tricky. Like doing the dishes is a is a relational thing and a non-relational thing. But if you only do the dishes and you don't pay attention to what's really happening relationally between you and the person with whom you, you know, you, you spend most of who you are with, then you learn very quickly that doing the dishes is not a relational thing, right? You're hitting the nail on the head perfectly there because, because that does become, that does become the case is, is that often um, again, the mundane becomes a substitute because that that whole that whole illustration ignores the fact that there are a lot more people that don't do church and don't do religion or this religion. And you know what? They continue their daily sustenance and they live and die in as fulfilled a ways as any, <laughs> with meaning, with purpose, with spirituality, with quality of relationship, with integrity. So. So the, the, the point actually becomes moot. It's a point that's actually not making a point. So even the language of, yes, great meals, but you have the mundane. Like, again, the relationship there is to the quality of the message, or the quality of the sermon. It's not to the quality of relational engagement with God. Mm. Again, it's the sermon then in that context that stands proxy for relationship with God. And the idea is, well, you know, it's just a run-of-the-mill mature adult relationship that's filled with doing these things and missing each other. And again, the quality or the, the requirement for intimacy that we're putting on the table is not being met through that. And I think that's fundamentally what we're trying to highlight. And equally with the liturgy, right? Yes. And I think about how much effort is put into rewriting liturgy, new liturgies. And if anyone is not familiar, sorry, I just maybe I should just 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 honestly take a pause quickly. Liturgy as a term is essentially just the the order of service and the actual language that's used. It's the prayers, it's um the things that are said within the service. So priests will say something often in a congregation or respond with something, or there are set prayers, set things that people say together as they go through communion, confession, uh, peace, etc., opening and closing the service. It's, it's, it's everything that basically is kind of hosts the service on a language, and it's more than that level that kind of happens there. But if I look at how much effort is put into rewriting it, updating the language, coming up with new liturgies, etc., a lot of focus on the action. But if you poke, and, and I feel like if I used that C.S. Lewis thinking with people and poked it, they would be very surprised to think that the liturgy could 
recede that much into the background that a voice could appear on the other side. I think, no, 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 no. We don't do that here. So that's part of the 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 either side of the spectrum looking at each other again. Like, no, 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 no. That, that's what like the crazies do on the other side and the Pentecostals. We're not like them. Well, you are like them actually in many ways. <laughs> yeah. Because you guys all are doing these things repetitively as a proxy for presence of God stuff. And again, it's also it's in some ways it's although the language is somewhat different as well, right? Because in some ways it's a similar delayed fulfillment, but the language is also quite different different in that. So I think the it's not often in that more traditional church setup that I've come along people talk come across people talking about, well maybe God brought that person to church or Maybe God was working in them through this particular part of the liturgy or that service or this prayer or that sermon or whatever. It's, in my experience at least, it's often a lot more, what is it? I don't know. Is it more private? Is it more murky in terms of whether there actually is a God or not? Perhaps the liturgy is that strong. But definitely the experiential is a lot more structured, a lot more predictable. Even though charismatic Pentecostal, etc., are quite structured in themselves, even though they don't always admit it, there's a lot more just kind of freedom bounce off the wall stuff going on there than in a liturgical church. If if you, holy cow, if you switch two pieces of liturgy around, if you do part three before part two, you're going to be you're going to be burnt at the stake. So, yeah, it's just a lot. It's a lot more predictable and a lot more linear. In the way in which it plays out, um, I, I fear I've got to jump in there and point out that Bob Powell's mm. got to go. <laughs> oh no! <laughs> so more, more next week, <laughs> which which leaves me with just enough time to end this and save the meeting before it goes off. So <laughs> I'm sorry. Urban Mystic relies on your support to do the work that we do please consider making a regular or once-off contribution via the, the link to PayPal in the show notes. Please don't forget to like this episode, subscribe to the podcast, and leave a comment on your favorite listening platform.